over and over and over and over. And, and me and Amari were even talking about how do we select song, what are the theme? Well, the theme is the same every week. And so, you know, as you go through these chapters, I started to realize why some pastors skip over this section entirely in their sermon series. But at the same time, I thought, well, the Holy Spirit instructed Luke and inspired Luke to write quite a bit in these chapters. And that wasn't there for no reason. There's an importance. God doesn't waste ink in his word. And so there's a purpose for all of this. And, and in the Bible, when something is repeated, that means it's something that God really wants to sink into your mind. And so, therefore, there's something important here. Obviously, the big theme, the overarching theme here, is Paul's trials, right? There's been five trials already. The first trial was when he was accosted by the Jews in Jerusalem in the temple precincts and accused of bringing Gentiles into the inner courts of Israel. And there he was almost stoned to death. He was almost beaten within an inch of his life by a mob and then arrested by the Roman Empire. The, a Roman cohort came in and detained him and he was given a chance to get, present his case before the Jews publicly. And they wouldn't hear it and he was almost killed again. And then he presented his case in a second trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish, pretty much the Jewish Congress, the, the religious establishment of Israel, the elders of Israel, which was made up primarily of Sadducees who were theological liberals. And he used that to his advantage, saying he was on trial for the doctrine of the resurrection, which he was a member of the minority party, the conservative party, the Pharisees. And that created a big brouhaha. He was almost killed again. And then he was sent uh, by Claudius Lysias to Caesarea, which was the Roman seat of government in Judea. And there he had his third trial before Festus. And not Festus, Felix, who was the Roman governor at the time. He was a cruel man, a brutal dictator. And he was recalled and back to Rome when Nero became emperor and uh, that tells you a lot about how brutal he was if Nero thought he was too brutal. And he was left to languish in prison for three years. Three years is a long time to languish in prison waiting trial. In America, that can't happen. It can't happen because we have the Sixth Amendment. For those of you who do not know the Constitution of the United States or do not know the Bill of Rights, I highly suggest that you procure a copy, or you can just go on the United States government website, read it, know it, learn it, know your rights. One of the great things of being an American is we have great legal protections. And not everybody knows their rights. Not everybody understands the Constitution. Not everybody believes in the Constitution. There are many people seeking to undermine the Constitution. But listen to, this, listen to the Sixth Amendment in the Bill of Rights. It says, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. I'm just going to stop there. There's more to it. But every American is guaranteed the right of a speedy trial. You can't be held indefinitely um, in jail without a trial, without a hearing. This is precisely what happened with Paul. Not only did he receive hearings, but the case get, kept getting pushed back, he has no bail, and he's being held 
against his will. Paul would like to be free. He would very much like to be preaching the gospel, being a missionary, but God had a purpose and plan for him. And that's the big picture here. The big picture here is that sometimes God will put us in a position where we cannot get out of it. Paul's in jail. He's being faithful. He hasn't done anything to get there. He doesn't deserve to be in jail, but he's there. It's not fair. It's not right. And it's very uncomfortable. But God had a plan for him. In fact, the Lord visited him in jail, remember back in 24, and said, I'm with you, Paul, and you're going to Rome. And sometimes in life, we're in positions where we're boxed in, hemmed in, and trapped in from every angle. Maybe you're not in jail. Maybe you're stuck in a very bad position at your job. Maybe you have a horrible boss and horrible co-workers, but you can't leave your job because if you do, you won't be able to pay your bills, and if you don't be able to pay your bills, you'll be homeless. And you go to work every day enduring abuse and all kinds of torment. There's no way out. You have to keep doing it. You can be trapped in an awful marriage. There are some people trapped in awful marriages for years. There's no way out. The cost of divorce is too high. The suffering and the abuse endures, but they continue on. They're trapped. They're in it, and they can't get out. Some people have other familial problems, whether it's their children or their parents, and they're simply trapped. They cannot afford to move out. They cannot afford to move on, and they have to live in the most trying of circumstances. All of us, to one extent or another, have been there, right? You see, a prison doesn't necessarily have to be with chains and bars. A prison can be a place, mental prison, that we could be in. A psychological prison, a, an emotional prison. And sometimes the Lord allows us to be there. Why? Well, God has a purpose. So here's Paul languishing in prison. And we see today he's going to face his final two trials. Felix is gone. We'll turn to chapter 25 for a moment. And we'll see in chapter 24, verse 26, or 27 rather, it says, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the choose a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So he's left there to languish. And now Portius Festus becomes the new Roman governor. 25 verse 1 says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul. And he summoned him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you come down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And after he stayed among them more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But, but, if there is nothing into their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for this time, for this privilege, once again, to stand under your word. Give us understanding. May our hearts be open to you. May we perceive from your word which is true, which is right. May we grasp the gospel. May we be moved in the spirit, O Lord, to to have a, a greater compelling to faithfulness like Paul did. O Lord, instruct us in your ways. Open our hearts, open our eyes, and give us insight. Father, I pray for my own self, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would control my mind and my heart and my lips, and that you'd carry me along in this power of the Spirit to faithfully carry out this ministry of the Word. In Christ's name, amen. And so, it was about A.D. 57 when Paul was first accosted by the Jews. It was about A.D. 60 when Felix was recalled to Rome and Portius Festus came to be the Roman governor. Portius Festus would remain, there, remain as governor for two years. Little is known about him other than the fact that he was a better governor than Felix and that he died in office. So um, his rule was two years and he died there in Caesarea. So now in this new rule under Festus, Paul once again is going to face the trial. As Festus becomes the governor, he takes a trip to Jerusalem uh, to familiarize himself with the region and the politics. And of course, the Jews, the Jews saw this as an opportunity. The Jews saw this as an opportunity to set another trap for Paul. And so seeing Festus, they ask a political favor of him. Would you please send Paul here to Jerusalem to stand trial? The text tells us very clearly their reasoning. They have no intention of giving a Paul fair trial. Their intention is to have Paul be brought there because it will be easier to assassinate him. They plan to ambush and kill him. Well, Festus is no fool. He says, no, if you have any charges, you come to Caesarea, send your prosecutors, and I'll have him stand trial there. And so we see that's exactly what happens. The Jews, just like they did a few years earlier with Felix, send their prosecution team to Caesarea. Now, I want you to think about this. Three years have gone by. Their anger is still seething. They're not relenting. They want Paul dead. The minute Festus comes into power, the first order of business is we want Paul. You know, you could see that there are some people that just uh, will not relent in their anger and hostility. They don't cool off. They don't calm down. They will continue in their hostility long, long time. And that's exactly what happened here. So anyway, they come back to Caesarea and they press charges against Paul. They present their case and Paul defended himself very clearly in verse 8. He says, neither against the law or the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Paul's innocent. He has not done anything wrong and 
We don't have the lengthy uh, discourses we do in the previous chapter, but it would have been the same. Clearly, the charges would have been the same too, that Paul was guilty of defiling the temple and speaking against the Jewish people and sinning against the law, which really had nothing to do with Rome, but they accused him of inciting riots, which would indeed cause the Roman government to want to deal with him. Festus, although a better man than Felix, is also a pragmatic leader. You see, in politics, we practice, or politicians practice something called real politique. Well, what is real politique? It's origins or the theory, a political theory of real politique, go back to Machiavelli, right? And it's the idea that you put your own interests or your national interests ahead of morality. In other words, sometimes you have to do what's wrong to put your own nation first. So morals don't always trump. What's morally right or what's the right thing to do doesn't always uh, come before what's best for you and for your nation. It's called political expediency. Right? And so in political expediency or real politic, you put aside morality and righteousness. So for instance, we've seen a very clear example of it right now of real politique, right? We're watching Ukraine get crushed. We're watching Ukraine get crushed. People murdered, blood spilled, bombs, nuclear power plants being bombed. And some people say, well, why isn't anyone intervening? Morally, the right thing to do would be, let's send troops over there and let's protect them. But real politique says, well, Russia's a nuclear power. And uh, if we go in there and get engaged in military conflict with Russia, it's guaranteed we're going to World War III, and, and that'll be nuclear, and the risk is not worth it. The risk of Russia throwing a nuclear missile our way is not worth going. And so the real politics says, the Machiavellian approach says, it's better that Ukraine burns than that we go into nuclear war. And if you think that's not what the polit political leaders of the world are thinking, it's exactly what they're thinking. It was Caiaphas understood this well, didn't he? Remember in John 11:50, do you not understand? It's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. He didn't realize he was prophesying there, but that's real politique at its core. And so Festus, pretty able politician, figures, I better keep these Jews happy. I don't need riots under my rule. I want to keep them happy. I'll give them what they want. So this way, I can have peace in the land. Even though he knew Paul was innocent, and even though he knew it would be wrong to hand him over to the Jews, he was willing to do them a political favor, because in return, pay for play, it would give me a few years of peace. That's how politics works. That's why it's a dirty business. And so, Paul is put on the spot. He's in a catch-22. Festus says, Paul, would you like to go to Jerusalem and stand trial? If you're innocent. Paul knew what was happening. He knew the cards were stacked against him. He had no choice. He says, I appeal to Caesar. Why? Because he knew he had a fairer trial in front of Caesar than he did in front of the Jews. He had more confidence standing before Nero the lunatic than before his own brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. That says a lot. And so he appealed to Caesar, and what does Festus say? To Caesar you appeal, to Caesar you shall go. 
Now, historically, Paul will go to Rome, and that is not covered in, in Acts. We'll see his trip to Rome. We'll see him laying in Rome, but we won't see his trial before Caesar. Paul will have a trial before Caesar. He's exonerated. He's freed for a period of time, and then, and then of course, Nero will eventually become hostile towards the church. He'll, he'll burn the city of Rome to the ground, and he'll blame the church for it. And uh, Paul, like many other Christians, will be arrested, and he'll have a second imprisonment where he's actually thrown in a dungeon, and he's ultimately beheaded. But his first trial before Nero, Nero actually sets him free. Like I said, he had a better shot before the lunatic emperor than he did before his own people. So Paul appeals to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. Christ told Paul, you're going to Rome. He didn't tell him how he was going to Rome, but he was going. And it's a reminder of Proverbs 69, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We don't always know where God has taken us, but we know he's in sovereign, we know he's in control, and therefore we can have trust and confidence that wherever we're going, he's with us. Let's go to the second point now, and that is looking at Herod and Agrippa, Herod Agrippa and Bernice, who comes. So now it says in verse 13, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him. And I'm going to move forward uh, down to uh, verse 20, being at loss at how to investigate these questions. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow. And he said, you will hear him. All right, so Herod Agrippa and Bernice come to town. They come to Caesarea. Festus is the new governor. It's political decorum that as the king of Judea, he is to come and greet, officially greet and welcome Festus as the Roman governor. Let me give you a little background of who Herod Agrippa II is. We already know that there are many Herods in the Bible, and they're not all the same person. And that is because Herod the Great, who was the first Herod of the Herod dynasty, and Herod becomes a title, if you will, is the, is the king of Judea. Now, Herod the Great was not someone who was of the Davidic line and who was installed as a king because it was God's will and purpose, but because Rome had conquered and was oppressing and was occupying Judea, they had to set up some sort of government of Jewish people so that the Jews could be placated. And Herod the Great was the conspirator. He, was, uh, he had great political acumen. He was, uh, he was a very clever man. Um, and he did a lot of things for Jews. He built the temple. The, the, he rebuilt the second temple, if you will, into one of the greatest uh, um, historical edifices that ever existed and, and could be considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. And uh, so much so that even the Jews, when, when Jesus said, tear this temple down in three days I'll rebuild it, they say, Harry, it took him 40 years to build it. You're going to tear it down in three days and rebuild it? It took 40 years. The temple complex was grand. It was, it was gold-plated. It was beautiful. And so the Jews had an uneasy relationship. Herod knew how to speak the Jewish language, how to appeal to Jewish custom, and to get the support of the Jews, but he was also 
a clever politician. He knew how to, he kept an easy relationship with the, the Romans. And so it kind of was like the, the bridge. He was the bridge between the Jews and the, the Romans. And he, Herod would keep the peace and, and, and the Romans kind of just trusted him. And so there was a dynasty and his children and grandchildren and Herod the Gripa II, who we're dealing with here, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. His father, Agrippa I, was spoken about in Acts chapter 12. He was the man in whom they said, a God has spoken. And he says, yes, indeed, a God has spoken. And boom, God struck him dead immediately. And so his father died by the divine hand of judgment. And Agrippa II was only 17 years old when his father died. So he could not assume the king's role, nor would the Roman government let him do so because he was too young and inexperienced. So they gave him a smaller province to govern in what would be modern-day Lebanon and said, go there for your training. And he went there for six years while a Roman procurator governed Judea. And then six years later, he came back and he was the king. And his sister Bernice governed with him. Now the Herods were not, were not moral people. They were, Jewish, they were Jewish by ethnicity, and they knew the law, but they did not live the law. They were very ungodly and immoral people. Uh, so much so that Bernice, his sister, was in an incestuous relationship with him. Okay? So initially, uh, she was married and left her husband and went to go live with Agrippa II, and they formed an incestuous bond. And then she left him and married another man and came back, and they continued their incestuous relationship, and the two of them ruled brother and sister in a very, uh, very immoral way. Yet they were not as brutal as, as his father and grandfather. So there's an interesting dynamic there. Bernice would actually later go on. Her and her, and her husband, and her and Agrippa II, would appeal to the Jews to submit to Rome in AD 70 with no success. And when the Jews were finally plundered, she became the mistress of Titus the general who plundered Jerusalem. And then <laughs> Titus, when he had no more use for her, got rid of her, and she went back to Agrippa II. So not the most moral woman you ever want to meet. And so they come to Caesarea, they meet with Festus, and I, I think it's interesting to see the background, the kind of people that Paul is being tried by. I mean, isn't that the case? Many times as Christians, we're tried by very ungodly and immoral people. People are accusing us and judging us and putting us down, and usually they're very ungodly and wicked people. And in this case, it was no different. And so, here they are with an understanding of Jewish heritage and law, and it's with this idea that it, Festus says, listen, help me understand what's going on. I need to write something to Caesar, what's going on with Paul. Maybe you could listen to him and say, we'll hear him. And so it's with this said that Paul actually now has... Uh, uh, an audience and he can present his case and this will be his final case that we see in Acts and what we have here is Paul's testimony we see three points of a testimony they're important right we see both your life before Christ your conversion experience and what your life was like afterwards and so let's jump to 26 and again I'm not reading all the text because there's a lot to cover I'm just bringing out the salient points and summarizing what's important here so here we go with the third, the third testimony of Paul in Acts. Three times Luke records Paul's testimony, both in Acts chapter 9, Acts 24, and here in Acts 26. 
There is importance here. So let's let's uncover this, okay? Verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul is appealing to Agrippa's Jewish ethnicity, his Jewish background. He's like, listen, you understand all that's going on. Hear me out. And so the first thing he does is talk about his life before Christ. He says, my manner of life from youth was spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem. is known to all the Jews. In other words, you, I was a popular guy. You don't need to research me. My reputation was well known. Earlier, we're told that he was a student of Gamaliel. In Galatians chapter 1, he tells us that he exceeded all his contemporaries in terms of his righteousness and zeal. This was, this was a man who was a well-known theologian in the party of the Pharisees. You don't have to, you know, go too far to know who Paul is. In verse 5, he says, They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul gets right to the point. He's, he's showing that there's no discontinuity between his, his Judaism and his Christianity. The, 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 the very life he's living is the fulfillment of his Jewish life. That Christ is the Messiah. This is the one in whom all the hope of Israel rests. And, and is it incredible? Is it hard to believe that God could raise the dead? And so what's really on trial here is the resurrection. It's Christ. And that's been the case all along. And then he refers to his pre-conversion life to remind Agrippa that he himself also didn't get it. He says, I myself was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them as I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You, you see what what's Paul here describes, the motivating factor in his persecution of Christianity was a raging fury. And that raging fury expressed itself in arresting people, killing people, even traveling to foreign cities to hunt people down. Paul had to live with that in his conscience. That's why he said he was the least of the apostles. What drove him was his utter hostility towards Christ. You know, it's an amazing thing. But when you look at the world, it's, it, it, it's what motivates people against Christianity. They don't hate you, they hate Christ. There's a raging fury against God. Man in his sinful heart and sinful condition is in rebellion against God. Man in his sinful heart and condition is at enmity with God. Man in his sinful heart and condition hates God. There is no neutral ground. You either hate God or you love him. 
And in the flesh, we are at total enmity with God. So it should not surprise us. Jesus says, you know, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. A servant's not better than his master. We, we shouldn't be shocked. Well, furthermore, we shouldn't try to make friends with people who hate God and hate us. Because in order to make friends with them, you're going to have to compromise and lower your standards to appeal to people who are not believers. We have to stand our ground and stand for our faith. People are going to hate you. It's, it, it's inevitable. But notice what's really significant here. It's the religious people who are the most hostile. And that's always been the case. The greatest persecution of Christians in, in history have always been from religious people. It was the Jews who persecuted Christianity the most in the early church. Even the basis of the state persecution of Rome was rooted in religion because they refused to worship Caesar and they refused to worship the pantheon of pagan gods. How many millions of Christians were murdered by, by Islam since its birth in the Middle Ages? How many Christians have been murdered by the Inquisition during the Roman Catholic purge? How many Christians are beaten and killed in India by radical Hindus? Religion is the greatest motivating factor. Because if you're deeply religious and deeply committed to a works-based system, and you've got people going out there saying, Christ died for your sins, it's by faith, not by works, there's nothing more offensive. It's a threat to people's whole world, to their religion, to their culture, to everything. You mean you're telling me that all this religious activity that I've done is worthless? Yeah, I hate you. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. But they don't hate you, they hate the gospel. And they don't hate the gospel itself, they hate the person who's at the center of the gospel, Christ. So then Paul brings, points to his conversion. Verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw my way, on the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in faith in me. Now we know the conversion story. We've heard it before. But Paul adds a different element and feature to this testimony and account, which he didn't in the other two. And that is a little more detail on the Lord's commission to him. Focus in here on verse 17, he says, I'm sending you, and then verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that you may receive forgive, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in me. I'll repeat that again. That's really what the whole mission was about. 
You see, at the end of the day, Paul's on trial. If he stayed in Jerusalem, it wouldn't have been so bad. He went out to Gentile worlds. The minute he mentioned the word Gentile, back in chapter 21, when he was standing trial in front of, publicly before the Jews, they went into a rage. This idea that Gentiles can be brought into the kingdom of God, that they can have a place among those who are sanctified, was offensive to the Jew. A goyim, a filthy, dirty Gentile with a Jew? Heaven forbid. But you see, Christ, and, and I want you to look one verse over. It says in verse 20, two verses over, but I cannot, he says, I cannot be disobedient to the heavenly vision, verse 19, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping the repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer. And that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light, light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. Herod, I'm not doing anything except what the prophets said would happen. What did the prophets say would happen? Well, it's in, it's in the prophet Isaiah, right? In the prophet Isaiah, it says that, that 49.6, listen to this, in Isaiah 49.6, and there's many other prophets, but this one in particular, is it too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. This is the messianic prophecies, speaking of Christ. And I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Is this something new? No. God had said that he would raise up his servant, the Messiah, to restore Israel and to preach light to the nations in darkness. You see, up until this point, the nations, the Gentiles, had been excluded from the people of God. They'd been in darkness, without God, without hope. They didn't have the law, they didn't have the word, they had nothing. But Christ came to commission Paul to bring light, to illuminate the dark place of the pagans of the world, that they may see the gospel and behold, listen to what Paul says in his understanding of this in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, for, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God prophesied in the prophets that his glory would cover the earth one day. That knowledge of him would cover the earth. And this is found in Christ Jesus. You see, God had a plan from the very beginning to save the nations. When God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 3, through your seed all nations shall be blessed. That was the first prophecy of God saving all the nations. Israel failed in that mission, but Christ succeeded. 
It was through Christ, the true seed of Abraham, that all the nations find an equal place in the kingdom of God. It was always God's plan to save the nations. Jews didn't want to know that. For that matter, they still don't want to know. That's why they're still in darkness. It's actually been reversed. The Gentiles have come to light and the Jews are in darkness. You can read Romans chapter 11. Paul gives a detailed explanation on that. I'm not going to get into that today. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Paul says this, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. In Acts 26, Paul said, at one time you were under Satan, now you're under God. Paul was sent to take people out of Satan's grip to take them out of darkness and into the light and into the kingdom. In Matthew 12, when Jesus said, the strong man will be bound, he's talking about Satan. When he talks about Satan being bound in Revelation 20, it's not some event that's going to happen after Christ returns. It already happened. Satan has been bound. His power to, to, uh, uh, to confuse and to deceive the nations has been bound. But as we get closer to the end, he'll be loosed again. And he'll have greater power over people. We're seeing that today, aren't we? But clearly here we see Paul laying out his mission. And he says something very simple. Therefore, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. How could he be? And for this, he was on trial. One thing we could see here about Paul is clearly this, is that Paul is a faithful witness even through his great suffering. Figure the context. Here's Paul in rags. He's been imprisoned. He probably smells. He's in chains. He's standing before Herod and Bernice in all their pomp and their glory. Festus, the Roman procurator, and here with a gentle spirit and a firm conviction, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can learn a lot from Paul's faithfulness because it was the same model that he gives here that was the model for the early churches they suffered for Christ's sake. I believe Luke gives all of this account for two reasons. Not only to validate Paul's credentials as an apostle, because there are many who questioned him, but to validate the Gentile mission. Well, let's see the response of the people here. So Festus and Felix, I'm, I'm sorry, Festus and Agrippa and Bernice are all hearing this. How will they respond? Well, verse 24, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. Well, Festus could hear no more. How many times have you shared the gospel with someone and they've interrupted you and shouted at you and said, I've heard enough? That's going to be the response of most people. And, and like most people, they're going to think you're nuts. The word here in, in Greek is where we get the word maniac from. Right? He's basically saying, Paul, you're manic. You're, you're crazy. I've heard enough. You've studied too much, read too many books all these years in prison. I, I've heard enough. And th- you know, there, there is a fine line, right, between genius and insanity. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you look through history, some of the smartest people in the world are also, you know, a little bit loosey-goosey. 
Albert Einstein was one of them, right? He was he was not he didn't play with a full deck, but he's probably the most brilliant, you know, physicist that ever existed in history. Elon Musk is a very good example, right? He's probably one of the most brilliant men of our day, and he's also a little uh, little kooky. But Paul's not insane. Paul's not crazy, and we're not crazy. The world thinks we're crazy. The world thinks we're mad. And if you're an unbeliever and you look at us, you would think we're, we're weird and crazy. I did it one time. I thought Christians were weird and crazy. I still think there are some Christians who are a little weird and crazy, too. <laughs> I'm weird and crazy, too, sometimes. Um, but it says this. He says, I'm not out of my mind, Paul said, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. You know, that's one thing we must never forget. The gospel is true, and it's rational. It's reasonable. See, the reason why most people won't accept the gospel, not is, it's not because it's not reasonable, it's not true. It's because most people are very emotional. You know what I've come to the conclusion? Most people are governed by their emotions. They're not governed by logic. There are some people that are absolutely dominated by fear. And they won't listen to reason, no matter how much you try to convince them. There are some people who are so dominated by their strong passions, it doesn't matter what you, how many facts you present before them, they feel a certain way, and they're going to go with what they feel. Going with your feelings will always lead you astray. Let me just remind you of that. The truth will set you free. Amen. All right? Paul says, now I'm speaking true and rational words. Verse 26, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's speaking to Agrippa now. In other words, listen, you know everything that's going on. This is nothing hidden. King Agrippa, he says, and he points his attention to King Agrippa. He says, do you believe the prophets? You're putting them on the spot. I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In the King James Version, Agrippa says, I'm almost persuaded, Paul. Isn't that the greatest tragedy of life? To come so close, to be almost persuaded, to almost be on the brink. Festus, I mean, he's the typical unbelievable. You're nuts. But on the other hand, Agrippa is sitting here listening. He knows it's true. I think I'm reading here in between the lines that Paul is looking at Agrippa and he could see his countenance and see that Agrippa is, con is, is, is getting this. You ever been with someone like that? <sighs> nah. That was, that was Agrippa. He's looking at Bernice. They're an incestuous relation. Now, we're, we're quite content in our sin. Leave me alone with this gospel stuff. We love our sin more than we love God. I, I was almost persuaded, but isn't that a tra You know what the greatest tragedy in life is? The greatest tragedy in life is not dying some horrific death, Right? You read about something in the news, 19-year-old drives off a road, slams into a car a tree, their life ends up. What a tragedy. 
Now, you know what the greatest tragedy is? To live in your life, to hear the gospel, to be under good gospel preaching, to come this close to believing, to coming this close to being almost persuaded to be a Christian, but you're like, nah. That's the greatest tragedy in life. For Judgment Day will be greater for that person from the person that have never heard. It's better to never have nerd the way of truth than to hear it and turn away from it. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. <sighs> Let me conclude with this. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would that God, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul was imprisoned. He was bound up. He was trapped. But his heart never changed. His heart was for the gospel. His heart was to see people get saved. His heart was to see conversions. He says, not only do I want to see you become a Christian, I wish that everyone would become a Christian. Just not these chains. I circle around back to being trapped in a situation in life, being under a long trial. Sometimes God puts us trials that last a short period of time. They're very intense. Sometimes God allows us to be put through very long trials. The key is to be a faithful witness through that trial. The key is not to give up. The key is not to grow weary. The key is not to lose heart. The key is to stay the track. Paul knew he was in chains, but he gloried in those chains. He saw those chains as, as an opportunity, as he said in 2 Corinthians 12, to realize that through his weakness, God is made strong. In Ephesians 6.20, he says, I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Or in Colossians 4.18, Paul says, I am writing this with my own hand. Remember my chains. And in his second imprisonment, right before he was about to be executed by Nero, he writes this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8.9, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise